Well, we've been together for a few months, so I figure it's time I, I come clean. I've got a condition. Something's wrong with me, and I figured you better know it. Better come from me than somebody else. I found out about this condition in sixth grade in math class when I was looking at the whiteboard and putting my eyes together as hard as I could, squinting my face, and I couldn't see the numbers that the teacher was writing. And I figured, well, I guess this is how it's supposed to be. No matter how close I got to the board, I guess, everybody else can't see the numbers either. What are we even doing here? I don't know who intercepted that signal, whether it was my math teacher or my mom. Somebody smarter than me suggested that we go to the optometrist. And when I went and I looked at the big chart full of letters and numbers, my mom was shocked and appalled to find out that I could only read the big E. And I was diagnosed with myopia. That's scary sounding, it just means I can't see far away. And I'm sure a lot of you have that blessing in your own genetics as well. I get that from my father, along with very crooked teeth. So I considered showing a picture up here of middle school Reed. Oh, there it is. Glasses, braces, big hair. Yeah, let's dim the lights so you can see it even more clearly, right? I figured this better come from me than somebody else. Parents, there is hope. I'm just a little less unfortunate looking these days. Well, I went to the optometrist and they decided that I needed some corrective lenses in my life. So to make middle school even more awkward, they gave me glasses. And I was amazed. I remember going home and going into our backyard and the dogs were running all around and I couldn't take my eyes off the leaves on the bushes because they were so vivid. They were so crisp, I could see every single line so clearly. You see, before that, I just thought, well, blurry world, that's how I was meant to see it. But then somebody came along and said, oh no, this is how you need to be seeing. And they gave me these lenses which corrected the rays of light entering my eyes, making it focus at the right point on my retina. And all of a sudden, I could see clearly. I could see clearly. And not only could I see clearly, my life began to change. It improved. No longer squinting at the whiteboard for math class. I was a tennis player. Can you imagine all that hair bouncing around as I swung a racket? I was a tennis player, and I could actually see the ball as it was coming toward me. My timing got better. My reaction improved as I knew when to strike it. Eventually, I had to drop the glasses and get contacts because glasses don't really have peripheral vision. And so I would turn my head and lose the ball, and all of a sudden, my timing was off again. And I can't wear glasses anymore because a certain pastor here apparently looks like me. <laughs> and so if I wore glasses, I didn't want you to think that all of a sudden Ben took the place of Reed and um, you're getting a mediocre sermon from Ben instead. <laughs> but glasses changed my life. You see, I learned in middle school that how we see the world dictates how we live within it, how we respond to things within it. This is true for middle school read with myopia. This is true for adult read with myopia. This is true for every single human being, whether or not you have vision problems. How you see the world depends on a couple of things, but how you see the world dictates 
how you respond within it. This morning, we're going to be in the letter of 2 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. So I invite you now, if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, you can grab it. It's usually in the pew back in front of you. The the words will also be on the screen, and I'm going to read from this Bible here. This is the fourth chapter in 2 Corinthians. We're going to start in verse 5 in chapter 4. Hear now Paul's word to the Corinthian church and the Spirit's word to us. Paul says, For we do not proclaim ourselves. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who said, Let light shine out of darkness who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the, no- the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in clay jars so that it might be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. You see, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, yet not destroyed. Let's pause there because I I realize we're jumping into the middle of an argument that Paul is constructing. So sometimes it's helpful to get uh, our bearings to figure out what Paul is talking about here. This is the second letter we have from Paul to the Corinthian church. And it seems that between Paul's first letter and Paul's second letter, some rival missionaries have come into the city of Corinth. And these counter-missionaries have discovered the new Corinthian converts and are starting to preach a different message. You see, these counter-missionaries, they dispute Paul's authority. They castigate Paul, and instead they lift themselves up, their superiority as teachers of God's word, as proclaimers of God's message. If you went further into 2 Corinthians, you'll hear um, Paul jokingly refer to these rival missionaries as super apostles because they proclaim that they have special gifts, that they are well-trained professionals who can peddle God's word. But you see, what they're actually doing is lifting up their own superiority about how great they are, not how great Christ is. And so in response, Paul writes this letter because there's been a fracture in the church. People have walked away from Paul and his authority. So to bring them back in, Paul models for them what a true Christian leader looks like, what somebody who carries God's word, how they should behave in new communities. And he says, rather than proclaiming how great I am, I know I'm not that great, I'm going to proclaim how great Christ is. And me, I'm not any kind of super apostle. I'm a slave to you for Jesus' sake. Slave, that's strong language. Slave means not human, subhuman. That's what it meant to be a slave in Greco-Roman culture. Paul says, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. And church, I want to suggest to you this morning that as we carry God's word into new communities, as we represent Christ in new relationships, in new places, we need to be very careful in heeding Paul's instruction. Because more often than not, we can implicitly declare our superiority when we come to folks who suffer from poverty of any kind, whether it be a lack of material resources a lack of relationships, a lack of 
knowledge of the self, any kind of poverty. When we enter into new relationship, we need to be exceedingly careful about how we're portraying ourselves and portraying Christ. Because you see, throughout history, the church has made a similar mistake when they've gone to new communities and met new people. They've reflected the super apostles' example more often than not, showing up to new communities that suffer some, from some kind of oppression. And the church says, oh, I've already got it figured out. Don't worry, I've got this solution already. I'm ready to, to show up and fix your life. Not even getting the input of the people who live within that community. Right? Sam Wells, who was the dean of Duke Chapel for a long time, says, we often incorrectly assume that the people who suffer from a problem are the least qualified to have input on that problem. We incorrectly assume that most of the time. And so we show up with our prefigured solutions and um, answers to problems we don't even know that exist. And a lot of times we look like the super apostles. So that's what's going on here in 2 Corinthians. Flip with me to chapter 5 now. We'll pick up in verse 16 in chapter 5. This is what Paul says now. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in this way. So if anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God's word given to us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. When I hear Paul's words to the Corinthian church and I listen to what the Spirit is saying, it becomes apparent to me that following Christ is fundamentally about having our vision corrected. Last week, you heard Pastor Ben preach in here about what kind of vision we usually have. We're really good at looking for brokenness, for what's wrong in the world. Yesterday, I went to lunch with my parents and my wife, and we were looking for a place to eat. We settled on a restaurant in Southtown, and we sat down, and we promptly waited for our food for about 45 minutes. And so my wife got on Yelp, which is the popular social media uh, restaurant rating app. And I noticed that she began to click on all the reviews that had one and two stars and none that had four and five. And I thought, you know, that's really funny about how our brains are drawn to what's wrong, what's broken, about who's to blame for this issue, for this problem. And last week, Ben said, Christ corrects that within us. And actually, we are called as followers of Jesus to go out in the world and look for what's good in the world, what's already happening by the Spirit, and to celebrate it, to celebrate it with the people who are so gifted and called by Jesus Christ to do this work. And in 2 Corinthians, I think Paul's thinking along similar terms here. 
He says, you know, we used to look at Christ from a worldly standard, from these superficial judgments we make so often. And if we were to look at Jesus with human standards, we'd see a failure. We'd see a guy who said some pretty smart things, who did some pretty cool stuff, who seemed to be pretty nice and welcoming, but ultimately was a failure because he got hung up on a cross and killed by the Roman Empire. But Paul says, that's not how we see anymore. We see for how things truly are. At our baptism, we receive corrective lenses that allow us to look at the world with the new creation eyes. And so when we use this new creation vision to look at Jesus, we see him for who he truly is, God's son, the one who brought about something new and full of light in a world that was broken and full of darkness. And we can look out on the world now and see with new creation eyes the wonderful things that the Holy Spirit is doing in people and communities who are very gifted and already working toward that end of reconciliation. But you know, so often, I think the church still has blurry vision when it comes to these kinds of things. We still have our vision blurred by sin and by brokenness. And we forget that Christ has changed everything on a fundamental level. I don't know if you've ever heard of the author Flannery O'Connor. She's a, a fiction writer and a theologian of sorts from Savannah, Georgia. And she wrote a book called Wise Blood. And Wise Blood details the life of Hazel Motes. Hazel Motes is the preacher in the church without Christ, as he calls it. Hazel Motes goes around town and he preaches that he is a member and a leader of that church where the deaf do not hear, where the lame do not walk, and where what's dead stays that way. And you know, Flannery O'Connor didn't write about Hazel Motes just to sell books. She had a point. She was critiquing and depicting the North American church, which so often lives and acts as if Christ has not risen from the dead, as if the tomb still has his body in there and that new creation has not sprung forth. You see, when we do not see with new creation vision, we feel that the world is broken and so we must go out and save it. The task of salvation falls on our shoulders, and friends, that is a, a heavy burden to bear when we think that we are the saviors in this world. But when we see the world with new creation eyes, something changes in us. We realize that no longer should we be so fixated on achieving results, about fixing what's broken. Instead, the new creation lenses call us to go and make relationships with people we need to be reconciled with. Since we are ministers of reconciliation, we go out and meet people in communities and places where we previously have not had any contact. And you see, it's in the process of relationship that results are achieved. When we aim for relationship, results will probably follow. But when we aim for results and we make relationship secondary, relationship doesn't always follow. And not prioritizing relationship is costly. I want you to look at the example of how God interacts with humanity, with the world. Now, you might say that God's posture toward us is probably one of working for us, doing things for us, or maybe even doing things with us. Read, you would say, he doesn't really, he's not interested in, in being with us. I mean, look at Jesus, look at his ministry. For three years, he went around healing 
teaching, making people's lives better for three whole years. That's a whole lot of working for and working with. But I want to challenge you. Jesus was 30 years old when he started his ministry. What did he do for the previous three decades? Scripture doesn't really tell us, but I think it's silence is telling. I like to think that Jesus, for the first 30 years of his life, was building relationships, getting to know people in the Galilee as they saw him running around as a little boy, working in the quarry as a man. He was being with people for 30 out of the 33 years of his life. He was simply being with, sharing a relationship of love, of compassion. If we are to be imitators of Christ, friends, we got to imitate his behavior of being with That burden of salvation does not fall on our shoulders. The burden of reconciliation does. We go and we build relationships. And that's where the reconciliation, the transformation, the salvation occurs, both for the people we are meeting and for us. Because the truth is, we are all jars of clay, are we not? We are all broken in some form. I'm not superior than my neighbor who has a little less money than I do. Just because somebody lacks resources, it doesn't mean they lack wisdom or they lack experience or that they lack the gifts of God. After all, the greatest thing we have to offer is relationship. And so when we take this posture of building relationships rather than fixing, I think our first inclination needs to be to listen to people. Not to show up with our ideas already figured out about what's wrong with them in their community and how we're going to fix them. Instead of asking what's wrong with you or how may I help you, maybe we should start by asking, what do you see going on here? Tell me about your community. Tell me about the ways that you are gifted. What are you good at? What do you think needs to be done in this situation? And may I be a part of it in this relationship with you? Listening is key. Showing up with our plans and answers, that means we've missed the point. Again, a lack of resources does not denote a lack of wisdom or experience. We're all in this together, and together we can figure it out. So relationship is not doing things for people, right? I don't have a kid, not yet. But I've been told by parents, and I've had this verified by Pastor Holly, that it is okay to feed to wash and to clothe your infant baby or three-year-old. But when River turns 35 and Holly is still doing those things, we've got a problem, right? You should not be feeding, clothing, bathing, doing these things for your middle-aged child because we all know that all of us have been gifted with some kind of capacity to make decisions and to act on them. That's what it means to be a human being. At the beginning of Scripture, we see that humans are called to be stewards, to to rule and to exercise dominion on behalf of God over creation. And so so when we show up in communities and we're ready to help and we're ready to to paint buildings and, and fix doors, but we don't involve people in that process. We just make them sit on the sidelines and do it for them. We are inhibiting their growth into the image of God, right? Oscar Romero, who is the the bishop in El Salvador, he said that the glory of God is the poor person fully alive. 
Friends, I want to remind you that in this series, we've discovered that all of us are poor in some way. We've experienced alienation and poverty, whether it be with our money, with our relationships, with the world, with ourselves. All of us have experienced this shameful poverty. And God wants us to become fully alive. Well, what does it mean to be fully alive? It means that you are able to make decisions that not only support yourself, but your community. That you're able to exercise your stewardship so that abundance might come from your communities and bless God and give God the glory in the process. And so as the church, when we go into new communities and meet new people, we need to partner with them to let them take the lead in their own community to offer support, to invest rather than to fix. That's what it means to be the church, is to invest in relationships rather than fixing people. This language of investing is dangerous because we know that investing doesn't happen right away. We don't see the payoff right away. You see, fixing is fast. It's quick, right? It's, it's easy. We can do it on a mass scale. If it worked here, well, then it, it might work everywhere else. Fixing, coming in with our solutions, requires minimal energy, less time, less contact with people. But friends, does that sound like the kingdom of heaven? Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. I don't know if you've ever seen a mustard seed. Luckily, I still have my up-close vision, so I can see it. It's really small. It's really small. And to grow that mustard seed takes time and intentionality. Right? That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, is to build these relationships which require our time. It requires our focus and oftentimes our patience. But as Ben told us last week, That long run is the one that's worth it. We create relationships which are sustainable, which make a difference in the world, which which fix ourselves and the other people in the process. So I want to challenge you this morning as, as you go from worship back out into the world, I wonder where is your vision still blurry? Where is your vision still marred? by the attitude of fixing? Where do you still feel led to provide solutions instead of presence? To provide answers instead of relationship? Think about that. Think about who you're not reconciled with yet. What people, what communities, what places might God be calling you to go and witness and experience so that you might grow and that they might benefit from your presence rather than being harmed by it? And allow me to offer this prayer over us, church. I pray that God might give us eyes to see places that God is already at work, bringing forth reconciliation and transformation. And I pray that God might give us a heart and an attitude of being with, that we might have the energy, the time, the patience, the courage to invest in people rather than to try and fix them. So that in that process of relationship, God might heal us both. Because it is by Christ's death and resurrection that we are saved and made whole to the glory of God. I offer that prayer to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.